lyrics that should be going through our minds when we hear that is, this is my story, this is my song, I'm praising my Savior all the day long. And that's really what our study in the book of James is all about. How does our life story become a story of, by God's grace, praising Him with all parts of our life? James tackles all these practical issues of life so that our lives become a life of praise to God, not in our own strength, but by His grace. So I want you to find James chapter 1 this morning. James chapter 1. When our third week in our journey through James's letter here, we've already seen in the first two weeks, this is a letter written by James, the brother of Jesus. And James had a burden for other believers. And his burden particularly is he wanted other believers to walk out their faith, to live out their faith, to what we just heard in song, to praise their Savior all the day long. He was concerned about a disconnect between what we say we believe and then how we live. But James knew it was hard for God's people to live out their faith. It's hard because life is full of trials. Life is full of difficulties. But even more, it's hard to live out our faith because of our own sin nature. Because of our fallen nature that wants what the world has to offer, that wants what the enemy tempts us with. And so James writes to encourage God's people to look to God's grace to live out their faith. Of all the issues he's going to address, the very first one we saw last week was he started with how we view trials. Because he promised us that in our life we'd have trials of many kinds. Now, it's not the promise that we, we like to hear, but the normal experience of our life is an experience of trials. Therefore, it's important to think correctly about those trials. And so we saw last week his very first teaching, his first command, is we're to think about trials in such a way as to have peace and contentment. And how is that possible? We saw last week it's possible because God can take the not good things of our life and bring good out of them. And in particular, the good that God brings is spiritual maturity. It is Christ's likeness. It is a growing of our faith. Well, James moves to his second command here today, his second topic. And at first glance, it may seem disconnected, but it's really not. What we're going to see this morning in verses 5 through 8 is a natural overflow of what he's just said. He's told us that trials will come, but God has a purpose in the trials to mature us. Now in verses 5 through 8, he's going to show us how we practically know what to do when we're in the trials. What do we do the next day when trials are hard and life is hard? How do we walk out our faith that day? But what he says doesn't apply just to trials. It applies to the good days as well. How do I walk with God regardless of my circumstances? So the question for us to consider this morning as we come to this text is how do we walk with God consistently? How do we walk with God on the good days and the hard days? How do we practically walk out our faith? As we come to the text, I'd encourage you to be thinking about that as we read this morning. So this morning we're looking at James chapter 1 verses 5 through 8. Can I ask you to stand please in honor of the reading of the word of God. James chapter 1 starting in verse 5. I'll be reading out the English Standard Version. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. But that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Would you pray with me? Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for your word when it convicts us and it challenges us, when you use it to expose sin in our life. We're thankful for your word when it encourages us and builds us up. And Lord, we're grateful that you use your word to conform us to Christ's likeness. You use your word to show us your will. And I pray this morning, God, that your word would come alive to us. Lord, you know the burdens we each carry. You know the strongholds we have in our life. You know the sins that each person here struggles with. And God, I pray today that your word might come alive and your Holy Spirit might take your word and apply it to our lives. And we might grow in godliness today because you're at work in our lives and thus the lives of your children. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be 
seated. So how do we practically walk with God, whether it's a good day or a day full of trials? What I want you to see in our text this morning is simply this, that God offers to give us the wisdom we need to live out our faith each day. The God gives us an amazing offer. Life is hard. It's challenging to live out our faith. But God gives us help. He offers to give us the wisdom that we need each day to live out our faith. Friends, it is possible to live out our faith. It is possible to walk in faith, not because we try harder, not because of that white-knuckle determination, not because of self-effort. It's possible to walk out our faith because God, our Creator and our Redeemer, invites us to come to Him and to ask Him for the wisdom that we need for each and every day. But the fact that it's an offer means it's not automatic. It means it's possible, friends, for us to go through our days not seeking the wisdom that God offers to us. He's not going to force it on us. He's going to offer it to us. And so as we think about this text this morning, the question for us is, are we willing to pursue this offer of wisdom from God? Are we willing to count the cost and do what God requires as he's going to lay out in this text for us? Do we desire his wisdom? Well, let's start with the bad news of this text, the, the warning here, if you will. Because this text reminds that it is very real dangerous, a very real possibility there be a disconnect between what we say we believe and how we live. It's possible that we do not live out our faith. That can happen in the trials, on the hard days that we were talking about last week. Because when we get squeezed by the trials, sometimes that sin in our heart easily comes out. But it's also possible to not live out our faith on the good days. We can rely on self-effort and feel like things are going pretty well and just completely forget about God's will. And look at how James describes it for us. Go to the very last verse of today's text. Go to verse 8 here. This is a pretty sobering warning he gives us. James says, He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. He's giving us a warning here. He said it's possible to be double-minded. Now, to get the force of what he's saying, the word in Greek could literally be translated, he's a double-souled man. Now, what is he saying here? Well, James has invented this word. This word never appears in the Bible prior to James. That was one of the earlier New Testament books. But also, this word doesn't appear in Greek culture anywhere. James, as best we can tell, coined and invented a new word to make a point here. What does it mean to be double-minded? It's a person whose soul, by their soul, I mean their affections, their inner person, their will. Their soul is divided between faith and the world. To be double-minded means our soul, our affections, our mind are, are divided between what we say we believe, our faith, and what the world is pulling at us. A double-minded person is someone who claims to be a follower of God, but honestly doesn't really want to fully live for Him. Double-minded is someone who claims to be a follower of Christ, but is unwilling to seek God's grace to grow in holiness. It's someone who is unwilling to seek God's grace to obey His commands. It's someone who says they follow God, but they're clinging tightly to their old ways. One author I read this week described it this way. This is a person who is reluctant to let go of the pleasures of the world for the sake of discipleship. Someone who's reluctant to let go of the pleasures of the world for the sake of discipleship. Friends, I'm concerned that describes many who claim the name of Christ today. They say they believe in Christ and they follow him, but they have known sin strong in life and they frankly do not care about it. And what's scary about a double-minded person here is often they think they are okay. But James has a very different assessment of them here in verse 8. He is a double-minded man. And notice this, he says they are unstable in all his ways. Unstable. He easily falls. He or she is easily pulled away because their faith is not transforming them. So for someone who says they're a follower of Christ, what is it about, what is lacking in their life that causes them to be double-minded, to be so unstable? We'll go back to verse 5 at the beginning of this paragraph, and he tells us, he says, if any of you lacks wisdom. This is an issue of wisdom. Now, what is wisdom? Wisdom in a general sense is practical knowledge, right? It's not just intellect, but it's practical knowledge. It's knowing how to live. A person who is wise knows how to live life. 
A person who's wise is the one that you and I run to for advice, for counsel when life is hard. It's knowing how to apply truth to life. But in the biblical sense, wisdom is a step further. I like the definition of wisdom that says wisdom is God-given discernment about the practical issues of life. Wisdom is God-given discernment about the practical issues of life. Maybe more simply, we can say wisdom is knowing how God wants us to live. And I believe that's what James is trying to say here. Look at how verses 4 and 5 go together. Go back to verse 4 from last week. He tells us, let steadfastness that comes from trials have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete. Now notice this, lacking in nothing. God is using the trial so we do not lack Christ's likeness. But there's something that we can lack that will keep us from getting to Christ's likeness in the trials, and that's verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. What we need is wisdom from God, knowing God's will, knowing how to live out God's will in the practical issues of life in daily situations. There's a reality check here for us, friends. It's lacking in us. Our default nature is wisdom is lacking. Notice he begins here in verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom. It doesn't mean he's looking at the Christians going, he's got wisdom, she doesn't. He's got it, he doesn't. She's got it, she doesn't. He's not doing that. In the Greek here, the word, if any, is a special type of clause that means the assumption that everyone who's reading this is lacking this. It's not dividing people into two people. It means, basically, if you're reading this, you're in this camp. We all are lacking wisdom on our own effort. We all desperately need God's wisdom. So then how do we get it? Well, he tells us, quite simply, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. We get it by asking the only one who can give it to us. Notice it says, let us ask God. Remember last week, we see the word let... That means do not let anything stand in the way of something happening. He's saying, you don't have wisdom on your own. You need it. You desperately need it. You're going to be unstable and easily falling. You need it. Don't let anything get in the way of you asking God. And friends, very easily things get in the way of us asking God for wisdom. Sometimes our own pride, right? We think we've got it figured out. We think we know how to handle the situation. We think we know how to beat that sin or love that person or whatever. And we try in our own strength. Sometimes it's the lust of our own fleshly desires that we enjoy our sin and we really don't want to change. So we're not going to go ask God for wisdom and how to change because, frankly, inside we don't want to. Sometimes it may be doubts in our mind, doubts about the goodness of God or doubts if God really cares about the area of our life or we could go on and on. James says, whatever it is that stands in the way of you seeking wisdom from God, get rid of that. Put it aside. You need to run to God asking for wisdom. But this word asking is not a one-time thing. In the Greek, the word asking here is a present tense. It means it's ongoing. It means asking, keep on asking. This means we can't say, well, I prayed for wisdom three weeks ago. Surely that's enough. He's saying day by day, moment by moment, in every situation where we need the wisdom of God, we need to be asked and keep on asking. That means, friends, when we're struggling to view a trial the way we saw last week, when we're looking at the hardships and having a hard time viewing it with peace and contentment, we cry out to God and say, God, I need wisdom right now to view this trial correctly. Please give it to me. When we're looking at a situation where there's a difficult person that's hard to love, we cry out to God and say, God, give me wisdom to know how to love that person the way you want me to love that person. God, I'm having trouble forgiving that person who wronged me. Would you give me wisdom to know how to forgive them? God, I'm having trouble encouraging my friend, and you've called me to encourage him. God, give me wisdom, please, to know how to encourage him. God, you called us to speak the truth in love, and God, I, frankly, I don't want to, and I'm struggling to speak the truth in this situation. God, please give me wisdom to know how to do it. Lord, I'm struggling to get angry here. Lord, please give me wisdom to know how to squelch this anger by your grace and put on forgiveness and love. On and on we could go. When we're struggling to live out the will of God, we ask and keep on asking for his wisdom to be mature in our faith. And there's an amazing promise here, friends, in verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, that's all of us, 
Let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Friends, this is stunning. The creator, our redeemer, the great I am, the infinite God says, if you lack wisdom and you are lacking it, come running to me and ask me for it, and I will give it to you. The creator offers us his wisdom. The God who is all wisdom offers to give us his wisdom. But notice how he gives it here. There's three different adjectives to describe his giving of wisdom here in verse 5. He gives it generously. The one who has all wisdom is not going to be stingy with it. When we say, God, I don't know how to love that person. Give me wisdom. He generously gives it. God, I don't know how to view this trial. He generously gives wisdom. But he gives generously. Second of all, he gives it to all. All here means to all believers. James is writing with believers in view. So any child of God, any follower of Christ who says, I need wisdom, God gives it generously to that person. That means he doesn't give more wisdom to the missionary in China than to us here in Montgomery. He doesn't differentiate. If you're a child of God and you ask for wisdom, he's not like, eh, I'm saving something for that person over there doing that. No, he gives it generously to any of his children who ask for wisdom. And there's a third thing that describes God's wisdom here, and it's so easy to pass over. This one really nailed me an impact to me this week thinking about this. He gives us, us wisdom generously to all, and notice this phrase, without reproach. And it's so easy to pass over this, but this is huge here. That means he gives wisdom without criticism, without finding fault. Now, okay, if you're a parent in the room or you've been a parent before, have you ever answered your kids but done so with a little reproach with it? Have your kids ever asked you for something and you said, okay, I'm going to give it to you, but next time you better figure it out yourself. Or they've asked you for something, I need help with this. Why didn't you ask me three weeks ago for that? Okay, I'll do it, but you, next time you ask me sooner. Right? You get where I'm going with this? Or you should know that by now. Come on. That without reproach means God doesn't do that to us. When we as his children say, God, I do not know how to do this. I do not know how to obey your will in this. Give me wisdom. God doesn't go, well, you should have asked me four weeks ago before you got in this mess, but I'll go ahead and give it to you. He doesn't do that to us. He gives it generously without any Reproach. When we run to God and say, God, I don't have wisdom to know how to forgive that person. He doesn't go, I'm going to tell you one more time, but next time you figure it out. He gives us wisdom without reproach and generously. He delights in giving us his wisdom. Now, we want to be clear here. This is not a promise that God gives us everything we ask for. It's not a promise we can claim to say, God, give me wisdom for how to get super rich this month. That's not what this is about here. This is about asking for wisdom for walking out our faith, for living out our, his will for us, for living out becoming mature and complete, lacking in nothing that verse 4 was all about. God is giving us wisdom we need every day to live out our faith. But friends, this is not just an offer he gives. There's a promise here too. And this is even more stunning here that God promises to give us wisdom. But I want you to notice something here. In Scripture, there's two different types of promises. There's an unconditional promise that's going to happen regardless. I read one earlier at our missions commissioning of Psalm 67. God is going to be glorified in all the earth, whether or not you and I do anything about it. His name is going to be advanced. His kingdom is going to advance regardless of whether or not we participate. We'll miss the blessing of it and the joy of it, but his will of his name going to the nations is not contingent upon you and me. It's an unconditional promise. God will be glorified among the nations. But there's also in the Bible conditional promises where God says, I will do something but a condition has to be met. He's trying to teach us. He's trying to grow us. And so he gives a promise, but he asks us something first. This is one of those. This is a conditional promise. And that becomes very clear towards the end of this paragraph. Look at verse 7. This is really sobering here. He says, For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. That means there are requests 
for wisdom that are prayed to God, and God says, I'm not going to grant it. And why would God not grant it? Because the condition he requires that he clearly lays out in his word is not been met. What is the condition God requires? Back to verse 6. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. Let him ask in faith. The condition God requires is faith. Now, faith here is not used in the sense of saving faith, where we typically think of this is the ongoing faith. This is the confidence in the character of God. This is the day-by-day dependence upon God, trusting that he is who he says he is. So the condition God requires is not just that we ask, but that we ask trusting in his character, confident in his nature. And so the opposite of that would be doubt here. So let's be clear when he says we must ask without doubting. This does not mean if you've ever had a doubt in your mind, God's going to ignore your prayers. He's not talking about that. We saw in the Lament Psalms last year that God invites us to come to him and to bring our doubts and our questions and our concerns. He welcomes that. This is not a call to perfection here. This is a call to trust in the character of God. So here, doubt means not trusting in God's character, not trusting in his nature. And so the reality check of verses 6 and 7 for us is if we pray for wisdom, but we think, God can't do anything about it, that's a doubt. They're talking about we're doubting the character of God or saying, well, I'm going to pray about it, but God really doesn't care about me. We're questioning the character of God. That's the type thing that's in view here. If we question the sovereignty of God or the greatness of God or the holiness of God or his goodness or his concern for us, when we call into question his character, that's what's in view here in terms of the reality check of God says, I'm not going to give you wisdom if you come to me doubting that I am who I say that I am. And what happens when when we go to God with his wrong intentions, not trusting him, we get basically what we want. Look at verse 6 here. This is so sobering. But I'm asking faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. This is not an image of an ocean wave crashing on the beach. This is the image of looking further out the ocean, and you see the swells of the ocean coming and going, and there's no rhyme or rhythm to it. It's just a, a pattern of unpredictability. That's the image that James is casting for us, that a person who lacks wisdom from God, they're double-minded, they're unstable because they're either not asking or they're asking, not trusting in God. This is like the waves of the sea. You never know. They're going to get pulled this way and they're going to get pulled that way. Their flesh will sit them that way. The world will pull them this way. And they're just back and forth. They're unstable because they're so easily swayed by their flesh and by the world. But God says it doesn't have to be that way. He gives grace to give us a different path. He offers to give us the wisdom we need to live out our faith. But he does more than just offer. So I kind of want to take our main idea and expand it out a little bit so we don't miss it. Notice this. God not just offers us wisdom. God promises to give us the wisdom we need to live out our faith when we ask for it confident in who he is. It's not just an offer, friends. It's a promise. But it's a conditional promise that he will give us the wisdom we need to live out our faith day by day, moment by moment, when we go to him. When we ask for it, when we ask for it confident that God is who he says he is. That he's a God who, as we saw in the Psalms, both great and good. And when we anchor ourselves in confidence by his grace and his character, and we run to him for help, he delights then in giving us the wisdom we need so we can walk out his will. My friends, there's some amazing examples in scripture of people who've done this over the years. Of people who are confident in God's character, who boldly ask for wisdom, and God gives it to them. Probably the one that most of our minds run to is King Solomon in the Old Testament. He wasn't naturally born wise, but God in his grace gave him wisdom. I want you to see on the screen 1 Kings chapter 3. Just see the, what, how it's described here, what happens. In 1 Kings 3, 7, you have Solomon praying and talking to God. He says, And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. I'll just stop there. 
He's not letting pride stand in the way of asking for God's help. He confesses his own dependence. He confesses his own need and his own weakness himself. He comes to God confident in the sovereignty of God, that God has made him king, that God is doing all this. And he continues in verse 8. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Again, even in this, he sees the sovereign hand of God, that God is the one who's appointed the king and the people and brought them all together. Now, verse 9, this is beautiful. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? Now, verse 10, it pleased the Lord that Solomon asked us. Let me just stop there. This is a model for us. When God's children run to God, trusting in his character and asking for wisdom, going, God, I'm weak. You're strong. God, I don't have knowledge. You do. I don't have wisdom. You have wisdom. Give it to me. God delights in answering this prayer of his children. It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked us. Verse 11, and God said to him, because you have asked this, and not ask for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies. You've asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right. Behold, and I'll do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall go after you. Solomon trusted in, in God and asked for wisdom, and God delighted to give it to him. You see the same thing in Daniel. If you remember Daniel in the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 2, verse 19, you see something very similar here. This is when Nebuchadnezzar has a dream and God reveals to Daniel the understanding of it. So we pick back up in that account in verse 19 of Daniel 2. Then the mystery of the dream was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven and Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. Again, notice his confidence is that God is a God of all wisdom here. Now verse 21, notice his trust in the character of God. He, God, changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. And verse 23, to you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might. You have now made known to me what we ask of you. We have made known to us the king's matter. That here you have another one who goes to God, trusting in the character of God, saying, this is not about me. I don't have it, God. You do. Help me do what you've called me to do. And God delights in giving it. No surprise, that's the very thing that Paul prays for churches as well. Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Paul, when we spent our year going through Ephesians, we saw him holding up the sovereignty of God and the greatness of God and the glory of God. He prays this for believers. And so from the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you. So what does he pray for other believers? Asking him to be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And then in verse 10, he goes on, Why does he want people to have wisdom? And not for selfish reasons, but this, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Just like we see in James here, this connection, God desires for us to live out our faith, to walk with him. And so he offers to us wisdom so we can live out our faith. Friends, God promises to give us the wisdom we need to live out our faith when we ask him for it, confident in who he is. Now that raises some very practical real life questions for you and me. There's a real danger for any of us of being double-minded, double-souled, so to speak, to where we say we have faith in Christ, but the pull of the world is so strong. If we go down that path, we become unstable. We get easily swayed by our flesh and by the things around us. And that all happens if we lack wisdom from God. So I'm going to give us three questions this morning as we wrap up. And these are questions I hope you will reflect on, even as we celebrate communion in a few minutes. Questions to apply this truth to our life. Number one is this. Do we recognize our need for God's wisdom? 
friends, as the foundation, do we recognize we need God's wisdom? There's so many things that can keep us from seeking wisdom from God. I mentioned earlier our pride or the lust of our flesh or so many other things. Do we recognize our need for God's wisdom? Friends, if we do recognize it, number two, are we asking God for that wisdom? Are we asking him for it? And when we pray, there's different types of prayers. We pray prayers of confession. We pray prayers like we did earlier of intercession where we're praying for others. But it's appropriate to pray for ourselves. Friends, when you and I pray for ourselves, what is the focus of our prayers? Is it selfish desires, convenience, or is it wisdom for holiness? When we find ourselves praying about ourselves, is it us wanting more stuff, or is it wisdom for knowing how to live out God's will in all those situations we face? Do we recognize our need for God's wisdom, and are we asking God for that wisdom? And number three, do we know and trust the nature of God? Do we know and trust the nature of God? Remember, he asks us, he tells us, he commands us to talk to him, ask for wisdom, but to do so confident in his character. Friends, are we confident in the nature of God? And the only way we're going to be confident in the nature of God is if we study the nature of God in his word. So, friends, are we, do we care enough to know the character of God to even open this book outside of Sunday morning to say, God, show me yourself, show me your character, show me your nature, because we so are desperate to know the God who has all wisdom. Friend, God promises to give us the wisdom we need to live out our faith when we ask him for it, confident in who he is. So those are questions I hope you'll consider, not just as we take communion, but all week long. It's very fitting as we come to the, this section, but any part of Scripture we're studying, to, to celebrate communion together. Because everything we're talking about, being able to have peace in trials or being able to have wisdom for God, is only possible because of what Christ has done for us. Friends, if I, in my simpleness, went to God and said, God, give me wisdom... I deserve to be condemned because God is holy and perfect. I'm sinful and full of unrighteousness. But the beauty of what Christ did is he's made us children of God. He's given us access to God so we can even go say, God, give me wisdom. God, help me in all of this. See, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. How is all this possible that we can have peace in trials? How is it possible, friends, that we can even approach God and not be struck dead in talking to him? And that's what Paul said to the people in Corinth. For I will deliver to you as a first importance, friends. This is foundational for us. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And then in verse 4, he goes on. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Friends, the only reason that simple people like us can know God and be reconciled to God and be in a relationship with God, the only reason we can have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, the only reason we can be seated at his table, the only reason we can get wisdom from him, the only reason we can have peace in trials is because of what Christ has done for us that we can never do ourselves. In our sinfulness, you nor I could ever get to God. We could never do enough good deeds to offset all the sin. We've offended a holy God. We deserve nothing but judgment and wrath. But God in his infinite mercy, when we could not get to him, came to us. When we celebrated Christmas a few weeks ago, Christ was born. He was born of a virgin. He lived a perfect life to fulfill the law that you and I have broken day by day and moment by moment. With all the sin I've, he never did. He went to that cross as a perfect sacrifice. We took all the punishment, all the wrath that you and I deserve. He bore it himself in his body on the cross. Like I remind us often, it wasn't just that. Then all of his righteousness got put on us. And so, friends, when Christ rises on the third day and defeats death, he conquers that. We're able to be reconciled to God. And so when you and I walk into God's throne room and say, God, I need wisdom, there is no reproach. There is no get out of here, you sinner, because we don't see our sin anymore. Christ has already borne it. Instead, when we walk into God's throne room and say, God, I need wisdom, he sees us covered in Christ's righteousness. Because of what Christ said, so we can then boldly with confidence approach his throne of grace to find mercy and grace to help in our time of need. 
And friends, lest we forget the sacrifice it took of Christ to make this possible, we celebrate communion. It's a reminder to us that for us to have this access to God, for us to be reconciled to God, that Christ's body was broken on the tree. The bread reminds us of that, that his body was hung on the cruel Roman cross in the worst form of execution ever invented. The juice reminds us of his blood that was spilled so that we could have forgiveness to God. Scripture says without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And so as we eat the bread and drink of the juice, we're reminded of Christ's sacrifice. But not just looking back, it reminds us well that Christ is coming again. That the day is coming when we're delivered from these earthly bodies of temptation and sin and trials, and we're with him forever in heaven. And so we rejoice in looking forward to that as well. And so friends, if you're a follower of Christ, you are welcome to come celebrate. If you know that God has rescued you, if you've put your confident faith in Christ and in Christ alone as your Lord and Savior, you know you're a child of God, restored to the right relationship with God, you are welcome to come celebrate this. Because if you're not a Christian, you're not sure you're a child of God, Scripture is very clear that this is just for God's people. It gives us warnings about taking this without believing in the body and blood of Christ. So friends, if you're not sure you're a child of God, we'd encourage you while we receive this to please just remain seated. No one's going to come talk to you and single you out. No one's going to embarrass you. Just stay where you're seated. Just, I'd encourage you to pray and say, God, I'm not sure I'm your child. Would you show yourself to me? Would you reveal yourself to me? Would you help me know who you are? And use this time to pray and seek the face of the God who is the creator of all and who desires a relationship with you. Friends, if you are a child of God, whether or not you're a member of Gateway doesn't matter. If you know Christ, you are welcome to come celebrate this, to reflect and to worship him as an expression of thankfulness for all that he has done for you. But also the time of reflection. Communion is a serious thing, so we encourage you. There's no rush here. You have time as others are coming to sit in your seat and to pray and reflect. When you get back to your seat, you don't have to take it right away. Use the time to reflect and talk to the Lord and have him search your heart. Even reflect on the questions we've been talking about. Because as you're waiting, if God shows you unconfessed sin in your life, the beauty of God's word, because what Christ has done, he says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and he is just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So this morning, if you're a child of God, you're welcome, but as you're sitting, if the Holy Spirit stirs your heart that you've been double-minded in some ways or you've not been pursuing God like you should or whatever it is he shows you, it doesn't mean you can't take. It means you confess your sin to him and receive his forgiveness and receive his cleansing and then with joy in your heart because of what Christ has done and the grace he's given you, celebrate the new life you have in Christ. I'm going to pray for us and after I pray, our worship team is going to come receive the elements and our deacons will direct you. We do have, for those who have allergy issues with food, there is gluten-free communion here as well up front on this side. But would you join me in prayer? God, thank you seems so inadequate to say when we think about your grace. God, that you looked upon undeserving sinners like us, people who deserve nothing but your wrath and your punishment, and yet you looked upon us with mercy and with pity, and God, you've offered us forgiveness. Lord Jesus, you came and you fulfilled the law that we could not fulfill. God, you came and you went to the cruel room across, Lord Jesus, and you took the punishment we deserve. You took all the wrath that each one of us should have borne, and yet you gave to us joyfully and freely your righteousness so we could approach the Father. And God, I pray today for myself and each precious brother and sister here, God, that as we celebrate communion, as we see the bread that reminds us, Lord Jesus, of your body being broken, as we drink the juice, which reminds us of your blood being poured out, and all these things, I pray our hearts will be filled with awe and wonder that we are the recipients of your grace. Regardless from doing things out of habit or just routine, oh, it's just another communion time. God, I pray that today our hearts would overflow with thankfulness and joy in knowing what you have done for us. God, I pray this day that you might use communion as well to grow us, 
where there's unconfessed sin in our life, are there areas to where James has warned us that we're being double-minded to where we say we're following you, but we're really desiring the world? God, would you in your kindness to us convict us of that? Not to destroy us, but to, in your love, to discipline us, to bring us to a place of repentance. And I pray, God, if you show us things even this morning that we need to repent of, we'll be quick to do that. Or knowing that you do forgive, not because of anything else, but because of what Christ has already accomplished for us. Lord, I pray that as we celebrate this, God, that you would receive great glory as your people remember what you've done. And I pray as well that we'll find great joy in this as we remember what is the foundation of our faith. We ask it all in Jesus' name.